Hello and welcome to Fandom Made Me, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring activists, leaders, and writers on the pop culture that made them who they are today. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and I am absolutely devastated because this weekend we're saying goodbye to one of my all-time favorite shows, Succession. For those of you who don't know, Succession is a widely acclaimed HBO drama series about the Roy family, a fictional dynasty fighting for control of Waystar Royco, a global media and entertainment conglomerate. Largely inspired by the Murdoch family, the Roys are incredibly manipulative, narcissistic, and deeply unlikable. But like many superfans, I find it really hard to look away. And I want to explore why so many of us feel that way. In today's episode, I'll be doing a special succession retrospective with Jen Taub, a leading expert on white-collar crime and corporate governance. Jen Taub is a law professor, cable news commentator, host of the podcast Booked Up with Jen Taub, and the author of Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White-Collar Crime, and Other People's Houses, How Decades of Bailouts, Captive Regulators, and Toxic Bankers Made Home Mortgages a Thrilling Business. In this episode, Jen and I geek out over our favorite succession characters and plot lines, all while exploring what the show has taught audiences about corporate governance and white-collar crime. Plus, we do get into the topic of shipping, so if you're here for Kendall Stewie, Roman Jerry, Tom Gregg, or any of the other succession ships, we do get into that topic. Much like a mature HBO drama, this episode features some swearing, as well as mentions of drug use and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Also, there are spoilers for all four seasons of Succession in this episode, so if you're not caught up and you care about spoilers, maybe just skip this one for now. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that Fandom Made Me is an independently produced podcast that I created to teach the world about fan activism. You can learn more about fan activism and support Fandom Forward and this podcast by visiting fandomforward.org slash donate or by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash fandomforward. And speaking of Fandom Forward, on Thursday, June 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern, I will be co-hosting Fandom Forward's live stream for Protect the Water, Protect the Mermaids, which is part of our Protect Ariel's Home water and climate justice campaign. So check out fandomforward.org slash protectariel to learn more about that campaign and sign up for our live stream. Now, on to the show. Jen Tob, welcome to Fandom Made Me, the coziest activism podcast on the internet. Are you ready to get cozy? Apparently, yes. Are you drinking anything delicious today? I am. I, although I'm trying to kick the habit, I am now at the moment drinking a Cherry Coke Zero. By the way, I'm drinking a lovely glass of white wine. I don't normally drink when I do this podcast. I drink tea or, or maybe coffee or even water, but I've never had alcohol for this. And I feel like I do need alcohol. Succession is just that kind of show. <laughs> Before we get into our succession discussion, tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. I am working on a variety of things, but my two or three favorite things are, first, I have a podcast like you do, but I only launched mine in December. Um, it is called Booked Up with Jen Taub, and it features nonfiction book authors, whether it's someone who just recently or last week published a book that 
they hope to become a bestseller or might already be one. And then our beloved backlist books. I mean, we and we go back, back, back. Uh, you know, I think it's, it, sometimes I make an exception. And for example, we uh, had a group of people talk about Letter from Birmingham Jail. And But usually I have the author on. And that's been really fun because kind of like your style, I, I like to just talk with people about where they're at. And then we get to the content of their books as, as part of that conversation. So I'm super psyched about just continuing that. And also I'm also working on my own, I guess it'll be my third book and it's about tax fairness, but I keep, I don't know the real title. The, the working title has always been taxation nation. And the subtitle has <laughs> been either lessons from the loophole factory or it's been loopholes, revolving doors, and island getaways. And what's been super fun about that book is it's required me um, to travel because I made myself a travel agenda. I visited so far two major tax havens. One was Grand Cayman in the Cayman mm. Islands. The other was Jersey. And I don't mean New Jersey. I mean Old Jersey. And this summer, I am going to be headed to San Juan, Puerto Rico, our very own secrecy jurisdiction. Actually, it wouldn't be a secrecy jurisdiction. It's It's still a it creates tax advantages for people with high net worth. Is that a nice way of saying it? There's a way that you can actually relocate to Puerto Rico and not pay capital gains on any of your investments. So I'm going to learn how to do that. I mean, I am not a high net worth individual, um, but I write about them. So that has been a lot of fun. Uh, the hard part is going to be delivering the manuscript uh, by August, but um, I'm going to do it or well, die trying. Well, at the very least, if you don't take advantage of those tax loopholes, you will take advantage, I hope, of a nice island vacation, so to speak. So when I went to the Cayman Islands, it was, uh, or Cayman, as the folks there call it, back in May of 2022, a year ago, it was the first time I had traveled since before COVID. So I just kind of like, you know, took a flight, you know, out of the country by myself to a luxury resort and met people who, you know, um, some, you know, on the record, some on the download to talk about how that place used to work, how it works now. But my first day getting there, you know, I leave my stuff in the hotel room. I go down to the beach. I mean, and I've never been at such, I've never been to a place like this before. Incredible service, incredible everything. And I'm like on a lounge chair and someone brings me over like a really good tropical drink, which just burns off, you know, so you have to have another one. And then I went swimming in the uh, Caribbean Sea. And as I was floating there, and I don't know if it was the two drinks or if it was the first trip since COVID or if it just was, I don't know, but I was floating there in the sea. And I thought to myself, why in the hell did I not figure out to make tax havens as my research agenda 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt guilty for thinking that, but not for long. It was really, my memories are very good. I did get some good, good details there. But anyway, so those are the things I'm working on. So that's pretty exciting. Well, that is exciting. And, you know, it just makes you wonder why all of these quote unquote high net worth individuals don't feel excited and happy about all of these wonderful island vacations where they can go roll around in their money. I mean, if I were a high net worth individual, I would be doing so much fan activism and then I would go drink my tropical drinks and then I would be happy. But I would start a foundation. I would, there's so much, in the, I mean, we're going to get to, you know, the uh, fighting siblings in succession, but turns out that um, money doesn't buy happiness. Uh, it turns out, right? You gotta, you gotta feel fulfilled from within. Uh, I think it's a very different world to be exploring how the other half or the other one percent 
live than it is to be living in fear that you're going to lose your money and not having necessarily the friendships and the social safety net and the family relationships that would allow you to kind of get off that merry-go-round. There are people who do it, like Chuck Collins, who was like the Oscar Mayer heir. But I think it's hard. I think it's hard to, and I look, I write about white collar crime. I'm not feeling sorry for people. I'm just acknowledging that I kind of get why you could be miserable. If you're measuring yourself by money and the next person's yacht is bigger, you're pretty fucked up if you already think that way. So of course you're going to feel miserable if your yacht is smaller. Fortunately, I have no yacht, so I don't have to worry about that. Neither do I. But what we do have to worry about is how succession is going to end next Sunday. As of this recording on Tuesday, May 23rd, we are down to one final episode and I am totally freaked out about where it's going to go. It's pretty messed up that they're all such bad people, but you want to root for them. How did you become a fan of Succession? I found out about the show after it had already begun. So I think that I first started watching during um, during COVID in 2020, if that might be right. Yeah, because it came out, I think it first debuted in 2018. The first time I heard about the show, this, this should tell you a lot. I'm a law professor and I happened to be, um, I got a nice opportunity to visit and teach um, in the fall semester at Harvard Law School. And they invited me to teach um, corporations, which is their business organization class. And, you know, one of the nice things about visiting a place like that, that was when I was writing my book, Big Dirty Money, you know, while you're in line um, at the, you know, sort of like, there's going to be, you know, someone's going to give a a talk, you know, so some professor doing something interesting is going to come visit and give a talk. And so I'm there in line getting like my sandwich or my salad or whatever. And in line to all these lunches, you'll be just talking to someone, what are you working on? What are you working on? I'm like, you know, white collar crime. And then some brilliant professor mentions, have you thought about this? And then boom, your research takes another direction. One of those buffet line conversations, someone said, oh, you teach you know, corporations and you're writing on white collar crime. Have you thought about watching the show Succession? Oh, okay, whatever. You know, I don't have time to watch shows. And then like, I think when COVID hit, I had time and watched, I binged those, those two seasons. I'm also trying to remember that I actually... Somehow I was connected to Frank Rich. He's one of the executive producers. And I don't know, because of because of Twitter during COVID, we had become like sort of friends a little bit. And so I finally, I said to him, you know, I've got to watch six. I just saw you, you know, you were one of the producers. I've got to watch the session. He goes, okay, tell me what you think. And so literally like 10 minutes into the show, I'm DMing Frank Rich saying, holy shit, this is amazing. He goes, it gets better. Like 10 minutes in and then I was hooked. So I, I watch it. And I think it was the season, the end of season two, when I was watching season two, there's a, at the very end of the season, you might remember it where Brian Cox is like on the yacht and he's watching yeah. Kendall give the press conference where he um, betrays his father. And there's mm-hmm. this look on Brian Cox's face and you can't see if it's, it's pride or surprise or whatever, as he's listening. I asked Frank, like, is it both, you know, what's that look about? And he said that Brian Cox did that scene in one take. There was nothing on the screen. Like, in other words, they'd already filmed Kendall, like filmed that separately or after or whatever. I got some like details from him, but you know, he never gave away any plots to me. And I haven't been in touch with him since then. But anyway, so I fell in love, you know, in five minutes. And I think the minute I saw Greg, when he like vomits out of the suit at the amusement park, I mean, that whole <laughs> the whole setup of having... Greg Hirsch stand in for us a little bit as an audience member kind of bumbling around and his trajectory, you know, it was the the theme song. It was the acting. It was the writing. It was the music. It was the scenes. It was, uh, you know, I've never really seen anything like it. I think of it as a combination between like 
you know, William Shakespeare meets the great American novel or something. I feel like now I know we only have one episode left, but I want to watch all of it again several times. I became a fan of Succession around the same time during the pandemic. I, you know, have seen a lot of gift sets on Tumblr and Twitter and Facebook of different TV shows. And I just kept seeing all of these gifts from a blog I followed on Tumblr where the, the person who created them was a big fan of Kendall Roy. And I just found Jeremy Strong's performance so compelling through those gifts alone that I was really curious about the show. And as soon as I started watching it, I was absolutely hooked. I watched the whole thing in a couple of days. And it's pretty clear that on the list of, of great television shows, I feel like Succession is at least in the top five. Critically, like the best shows of all time. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know how I can compare because Succession is like many movies. So as a corporate governance and white collar crime expert, you have shared with me some articles that some of your own colleagues and friends have, have commented on about the show's depiction of corporate governance, what's realistic, what's not. I want your take on this. And, and you know, are there any pet peeves that you noticed as an educator and a, and a law expert? I'm glad you asked that. I mean, it's interesting. I often give drama, like poetic license, but when things are really obvious, you know, it makes me angry. So let me give you an example without mentioning shows, just types of things that would make me lose my mind uh, before I say why succession, I think, succeeds, um, even though there may be some nits. Like, I think I was once watching a, sh a movie and someone was talking about needing to get a patent on something and they meant copyright and it was going to like, you know, just ruins it for me. Part of, I think, the fun of watching this as a corporate lawyer is how much it resonates. But it's also like the puzzles. Like I think either in season one, either episode one or two, there was this whole discussion about like how the trust, there was a family trust that owned shares of the corporation. And I'm literally had to go back and watch it. I'm like trying to draw it on a piece of paper. Like, how does this work? How does the voting structure work? And then I realized it seemed to make sense. But at first I didn't fully like it bothered me that I couldn't chart it out on a whiteboard at first. I'm going to divide the world into two types of people. People who practice corporate law versus people who maybe teach it and haven't really practiced it. And I think for those who have either been at big law firms, you know, big outside counsel to corporations or have been in-house counsel, the show is like on point completely. I mean, I did both. I was in, I was at a big law firm in um, New York while Gotchel and Manjay's before, right after I got out of law school, where I did trade practices and regulatory law was my department. So I was not doing, you know, M&A, which is mergers and acquisitions. And I wasn't really doing litigation. I was, I had a really good job, like counseling clients, um, either the telecom companies or other clients on compliance with business regulation. It really was great. Um, so I've done that. And I've also was in-house at two different corporations, very different in terms of corporate governance, which would explain why one of the corporations, the senior executives went to prison for white collar crime. The other corporation where, you know, really um, very compliant, very well run and very different corporate culture. But at the same time, I can see in the characters in this and in how it operates, it seems like how business really works. The official story about how corporations operate if these, you know, these law and economics professors who either teach like securities regulation, which deals with investments or teach corporation law, like they're going to tell you that business leaders make decisions, you know, using spreadsheets with a present value calculation and make a decision about where to put their money 
after doing all the math on the future cash flow that will result from any given decision. And I, you know, I call bullshit on that. You know, yes, people do the numbers, but there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of flying by the seat of your pants, you know, for some businesses more than others. And there's a lot of guesswork and there's also a lot of ego and fiefdom struggles. And if you don't understand interpersonal dynamics and protect yourself, if you're not the real leaders of the company, like if you're not the family that's running something or you're not the in the top executive suite, you've got to always operate like Jerry. Like that's why Jerry is the most realistic character for me, Jerry Kilman, who's always got, you know, looking out to protect herself because she knows the winds could blow either way. A lot of economics people are saying everything is just, you know, done for financial reasons and it's all about uh, maximizing shareholder value and so on. The corporation law people would tell you that, you know, if you look at Delaware law, which is where most corporations are incorporated, they would tell you that, you know, the board of directors runs the company and selects the CEO and is in charge of the direction of the business. And, And the reality is, I call bullshit on that too, because that's the official story. What really happens is you don't get to be on the board of directors if the CEO doesn't actually like you. It's a, even though it's a self-perpetuating board, none of those board members are going to select someone who's you know an outsider um, or a dissident shareholder unless there's some sort of battle to get on the board through some big outside shareholder who wants a little more control. And also, you know, board meetings only happen monthly unless there's an emergency, and they're not really in tune with or like they don't know what's going on the day to day. And I think in that way, this show really depicts that fairly accurately. I see a lot of the ego and not so much, you know, there's number crunching in succession, but the decisions are very much driven by ego. And I don't feel that any of the Roy kids are that intuitive. I think that's one of their major flaws is that they don't see people in the market in the way that Logan does. I mean, for better or worse, he's a pretty evil character. In the show, there's something he fundamentally understands about how markets work. And his kids really don't. And the idea that the last thing that he ever said to them was, I love you, but you're not serious people, that so encapsulates to me what the struggle is in this show. They're not serious. They can't wear his shoes and they can't step into them, although, you know. I mean, that's true. And yet Kendall, I think in this last episode of the funeral, steps into his father's shoes by being, you know, let me just sort of back up and say, just because I'm saying this accurately describes some companies doesn't make what what uh, Logan Roy did good. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're covered. You know, there's a lot of what I would consider securities fraud um, that they just get away with. I mean, one the you know they get away with a whole bunch of stuff. And even Tom didn't, even though he you know offered to be thrown under the bus and go to jail. So far, he has not gone to jail. So this is not, you know, he might be a serious person and you're absolutely right that he understands how markets work. But part of that is because of fraud, you know, right. there's, there's fraud inside of this business. Um, but he's also, on the other hand, um, as in the eulogy that Kendall gave, the father does know how to, you know, those amusement parks really do exist out there. And he really does run these television stations, but it's incredibly this stuff is incredibly corrupt. You know, at the amusement parks or at the cruise division, they were sexually assaulting women. And then, you know, there might even have been some deaths. It's like horrific. And that all gets sort of papered over. Um, and there's obstruction of justice because documents get destroyed. And, and you know, things just move on and uh, no one no one seems to 
care. I will say that in this last episode, the funeral episode, each of the kids did something similar to what their, well, father would have done, but in a different way. Like what Shiv does in her eulogy or sort of around the time of the wedding, she figures out how to have Lucas Matson, who she wants to still take over the company, how to release the bad news on a day when no one will be paying attention. That's something that businesses will do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could be relevant to the shareholders when they vote to approve this merger, if the merger goes through. But maybe, you know, if they get that bad news out and no one's paying attention to it and the market price of the company doesn't change, then it's going to defeat their ability to bring any kind of, you know, maybe securities fraud case or it might not, it might just, you know, they might not object to the merger. Um, or the valuation of the company. Because here's what could happen next. They could go through the merger and then more news comes out about the bad numbers at Gojo. And if shareholders are trying to sue, they're going to say, well, you didn't mention this uh, you know, when we went through this merger and now we're going to try to sue, blah, 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 or whatever point in time. And they're going to say, and maybe when a real expose comes out, the stock price drops, they can point back in time to the day of the funeral and say, this was already in the market and the market knows best. So you, you really, you can't really, um, you know, successfully bring this case. There's all kinds of stuff you just sort of see here that's going on. And that's a tactic her father might've used. When Kendall gives the speech, it's not so much the speech. You know, he says to two different people, he steps into his father's shoes. One is Hugo, the PR guy who already has dirt on him because of the insider trading that his daughter did. Right. And he, so he already has a little bit of control over him. And he says, you can join me. um, You can work for me. It's not going to be equals. You'll be my dog, but there'll be a lot of good table scraps or millions in table scraps. And, and he says, woof, woof. And that's like, you know, his father would be that way that, you know, t- let him right. let everyone know who's in charge. This is what the deal is. And you work for me and I, and I take care of you. Similarly, he steps into his father's shoes when his, his bereft uh, body man, you know, is in therapy. I just love that exchange and saying, you know, you know, therapy is one thing, but like, don't you want to go out and do stuff with me? And he just, he just perked right up, you know? And so part of, I think what he was saying, what he realized in the eulogy is, yeah, his father was a monster, but for people who want to not explore their feelings, who don't want to care about how they hurt people, who just want to play a game and win, join Kendall's team. And that's where he was like his father. It's hard for me to see, but maybe you can, Sabrina, about Roman. Because I'm trying to think, you know, he, he did start out the episode with all this rehearsing and bravado and even had a beard like his father and tried to be a serious person, but he fumbled. And I can't even think of anything he did that was serious. And the sad thing is that the one child who actually really loved his father, despite his cruelty, failed because he cried. Well, I think, first of all, that Roman fumbled the bag in order to for them to push him out of the running. So now it's really between... Shiv and Kendall. For Shiv, I think gender really is the the driving force here. Her impending motherhood is going to be the factor here. I really don't know what's going to happen with her other than I think she's probably going to wind up back with Tom. But for Kendall, Kendall's the most interesting to me because if we we go back to the idea that Succession is really more like a film or a series of, of films than a television show, it's comparable to The Godfather in that you see Kendall make this Michael Corleone-esque transformation. The show starts with him on his coronation day. He's expected to take over. 
there are all of these expectations he has for himself at the company and he fails. And you see over the course, particularly over the course of the last season, these little moments where he's just really, he's going through the metamorphosis and he's becoming his father. Going back to what I was saying about them not being able to wear their father's shoes, you're totally correct. They all kind of have a piece of him and they're trying to fit the broken pieces together, but they don't want to collaborate so much or they go through different phases of wanting to collaborate and, and do something together. Like at the beginning of this season, they had the, you know, they bit on pierced versus, you know, in the season before that, when they were constantly, you know, keeping each other at arm's length, they all have a lot of ego and they all know how to do corrupt things with the numbers. But I think the thing that really strikes me about Logan and that I think a lot of business leaders need is a sense of intuition about the markets and about human behavior. Again, I'm not saying that Logan was a good person, but I think that in many ways, when he interacts with other people, he sees what motivates them. And, and scarily enough, that's what makes him so manipulative. And you can use that kind of power for good, or you can use it for incredible evil. So, so now I'm actually curious about your take on intuition as sort of um, something that comes into corporate governance. So it's, I mean, to me, the word intuition um, embodies a number of concepts. And so if I were to, I think it's critical, but let me define it for, you know, without mm -hmm. using a dictionary definition, I think intuition is about being able to read a room. Intuition is about understanding everyone you're dealing with, what their public and what their hidden agendas are. I don't think mm -hmm. agenda is a bad thing, right? Uh, intuition is about knowing what the real resources and possibilities are in a particular situation. And intuition is also know, understanding that people's memories can fade so that if they someone tells you something about themselves, they might not remember that you know this and that you can use that and bring it up and see how they respond to see. I don't know. The, the intuition is 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 critical. So in, in body language and everything. So it's all these pieces together. And it's also understanding. Intuition is also um, self-knowledge because we're not invisible people. We walk into any situation, any business in, mid in the middle of things, in media's race. And we are a player and people might not know if they can trust you. And so intuition is knowing if someone is testing you to trust. And, and, and this all seems so like treacherous and like whatever, but this is when the stakes are really high um, and stakes include not just money, but people's sense of self, their trajectory, all this stuff that people could be having affairs with each other. You don't know what's going on and you just have to always have that, have that sense of intuition. And I think um, Shiv, her biggest problem, and I think it's the gender thing is there, but she, I feel like she always shoots herself in the foot because she lacks that intuition. She's good and, pr and prides herself in being able to charm people, but she doesn't realize that people know how to eat up her charm and not let her know that they're using her. So the, the message of this is, if you know, unfortunately being a corporate leader like now Kendall maybe, and like Logan Roy, the message is you can't have feelings um, and you can't have integrity. They don't go with a job. Pretty scary. And, and, and that's the thing to me. I think that's why people find this to be so realistic because we're trying to understand these people who are calling the shots, who are 
sucking up all of the resources that we have, climate, financial, and otherwise, um, politically sort of putting their weight on the scales, and, and why they make crazy decisions like changing HBO t to Max, <laughs> right? And, and to me, the show embodies so much of that. So in terms of broad strokes, knowing what you do now, who do you think will win succession on Sunday? And who might win if this were real life? So um, I think we're going to be shocked, but maybe not too shocked. I know it's a 90 minute episode and I'm already like trying to plan everything I'm doing before and after. I'm, I need to block out that entire like day. I know I've got work to do, but this is work to me. One of my best friends, Jennifer Posner, she's a media critic, amazing feminist writer, is getting married on Sunday, and I'm so excited for her, but also it is the night of succession, so um, I'm not going to be looking at my phone from like 9 p.m. onward. We're going to get home probably after the episode is out, but that's the first thing that I'm going to do. Turn off every screen. Yeah. We right. don't want any spoilers. Um, so my, I actually think it's, uh, you know, I, I, I might not be right about this. But I don't think, you know, here we have, like, Shiv thinks she set herself up with Matson because, you know, she made friends with Mencken and she thinks he says we, he's willing to do, you know, a, a, we think it's him, but, that you know, that a, C, a U.S. CEO is a go. And so somehow Mencken won't try to block the deal under CFIA. So there's a statute, uh, this uh, organization, the committee, is it the Committee for Foreign Investment in U.S. Corporations, the CFIUS Review that can happen um, usually before a merger. Sometimes it could happen after. So I think that whatever it is, um, he, you know, if those are the, if those signals are true, Shiv is thinking she's going to be the CEO. Then, and some of us would say, "Oh, wait, no, no, they're going to bypass her for Kendall." I actually think it's going to be someone else. I'm rooting for Jerry Kelman. I want it to be Jerry. Uh, I mean, it'd be fucking cool if it was Marsha's son, but I, he's not even been in in it enough but it's I greg greg i know greg would be hysterical greg yeah, sweating yeah. on his city bike which is such a nice parallel to him in the costume at the beginning like i'm but in some ways it makes sense to be kendall because as you said this whole thing is like a sandwich it's like the first episode he was supposed to be stepping up into this role and now he's matured over all these seasons and is he going to step up now but my god there's part of me that thinks that uh, this guy, Lucas, is going to like do something entirely different. But I don't know what American he'd put in. You know, I don't think it's going to be Tom Wamsgan. <laughs> I mean, that'd be crazy. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I, I think I am of the mind that whatever I think is going to happen is not going to happen just because it, it's not going to be predictable. But I would say that based on my godfather theory, it's probably going to be Kendall and it's going to be this grotesque metamorphosis. He has given up so much. He's lost his family. He's lost his friendships. Although, you know, we were, I don't know if you know anything about like the shippers, like the um, Kendall Stewie shippers. I feel like there's this amazing ecosystem of, of queer fanfic and shipping. Wait, and, wait, wait, um, wait, 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 what? Stewie and Kendall, what's a shipper? Oh my God, shippers. This is like fandom 101. I'm going to, you're going to, you're going to learn I know something. nothing I about fandom. <laughs> educate, educate. Oh my God. The law professor. The student so, who passes the teacher. I, I'm going to teach on day one. Yeah, the student teaches the teacher. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. God. It's going to be oh so good. God. I can't wait to teach someone about this. So so educate me. 
So a ship is a short for relationship, and shippers are people who who ship, quote unquote, it's like a verb. Um, you pair people together, typically in fiction. People do it in real life too, and it's really problematic. So you see that a lot with Taylor Swift and the different guys she dates, or, or you know, there are some people who say that she's secretly bi or gay, and like they do ships between her and and other actresses. Wait, or singers. this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I can't believe this is a whole new way of thinking about things. And how do people do it? Do they do like a meme of them together? Or how do you Oh ship? my God. So, so shipping, you know, so one traditional way to do it is to write fan fiction. So um, slash fiction would be, or slash fic would be queer fan fiction. So, and this, this is rooted in this, this is, there's a whole history, Jen. Um, Kirk and Spock from Star Trek is considered probably the earliest form of slash fic but as it pertains to succession i think one of the most common slash fic pairings would be kendall and stewie people love stewie he has such a an amazing fandom for someone who is barely in that show um the other one and i have to say I, i'm not ashamed of this i'm a huge roman jerry shipper i'm yes! a sicko i'm one of the sickos of course. what can i say i love roman jerry i love this idea of the older woman even though roman is disgusting and, and his behavior is totally inappropriate i have to say i love that jerry kind of loves it and that she she kind of loves him like and, and she and, said i could have gotten you there she could have <laughs> he would not have messed up that eulogy if she had been guiding him yeah, those are the the two big ships. I mean, there's Tom. Oh, Tom and Greg. People are constantly. <gasps> Tom and Greg, of course. There's of so course. many. So there are so many videos of Tom and Greg that people edit together online. I'll send you the one that's like a rom com trailer. Like if Succession were a rom com, it would be Tom and Greg and their love story. But I think there are a number of ships on the show that I'm probably forgetting. But those are the main ones that that stand out to me. So that's what shipping is. You learn. I'm something. sure Lucas and Shiv. Yeah, I don't really see that as much. I feel like people are constantly talking about how he's really just like Elon Musk. Now I can't wait to ask my 23-year-old about this, but I think, or my 16-year-old, but I think they're going to roll their eyes at me and be really angry that you told me about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. But yeah, I follow, I'll send you some of the accounts I follow on Twitter. There's a Roman Jerry Shipper account that posts really amazing succession content. I feel like Jay Smith Cameron, who plays Jerry on the show, follows a lot of these accounts. What's fun about the show and, and the, the life around it and the marketing is how much these actors lean into the ships. Like they are aware. Uh, Jay Smith Cameron and Kieran Culkin are aware of the fact that people are really rooting for them and they really play that up. And they were friends before the show and, and she's like a mentor to him in real life. But and, and he's married and I think she's married as well. But but, it, you know, it's so fun. It's so fun. No, it's really it, it's great. It's great. That really leads me to what your favorite moments were in the series. Any particular highlights or favorite characters? This, the episode, the penultimate episode, the funeral one, it was the not just the best episode of Succession, but I think the best writing and theatrical performances that I've seen in my life. Like, I just, I can't even believe it. And especially the parts where they did such a good job uh, using this medium and, and using the cinematography to tell a story without dialogue. There was so much that they did. And I think about, there's so many 
pieces of scenes from the penultimate episode, as well as throughout the series, which I can talk about that I love. But one that jumps out at me was when Carolyn, the trio's mom, is at the church before the funeral um, begins. And she happens to see Carrie, who was Logan's Mistress, um, I don't know. Is mistress, that- Paramore, um, and was with him when he died, uh, Carrie, and sees her there. And she's shaken. And she's also, if we remember from a few episodes, maybe in, it, that she was uh, treated really poorly um, by Marsha, um, Logan's current wife. I mean, Marsha had been out of the country living on her own. And Logan had, uh, you know, essentially Carrie had basically moved in to the gorgeous apartment that that logan lived in and when she came to to um, when people were paying their respects after logan had died she'd come over and she just wanted to get some things but it's also closure and basically marcia said don't don't go upstairs you know here's your stuff and then she said you know her, her purse spills open onto the floor and then she starts trying to put stuff in it and someone says uh I've called her a cab so she can take the subway back to her small apartment or something. And it was a really cruel thing uh, that Marsha did. So then, if you remember that scene, with the, this last re- episode at the church, we get, you know, Carolyn, the first wife, uh, saying, Carrie, come with me. She stands up and she escorts her to the first row where she where the ex-wife should be sitting. And Connor's mother was in an institution. We don't even know where she is. So you would think that the first row would have just Marsha, the current wife, and Carolyn, the former wife. But she brings Carrie up. And then as she's walking, she passes she passes by one of the pews where someone named Sally Ann is sitting. She says, Sarah, this is Sally Ann. She, no, she says, this is Sally Ann. Uh, she was my Carrie, meaning that was his his mistress when she was married escorts Sally Ann. She goes, you might as well come along too. And all the, the girlfriends and ex-wives are all in one pew together. And what's kind of amazing is that that happens. And Marsha, who'd been so incredibly cruel, put her hand on um, Carrie's hand. And then you see Carrie look over and cry. And I thought that was some of the best acting in the flipping world. And then there was some comment. She Marsha looks over, you don't know what she's going to say. And she looks at all the women and says, he used to grind his teeth. And they all giggle. And it was just the most incredible, incredible display of, you know, forgiveness and connection. And you would think that these women, you know, would have been pitted as rivals in their situation. And yet they were much caring and more forgiving of each other than the siblings were. And it was kind of remarkable. How about mm-hmm. you? What are some of your favorites? Oh my God. Everything to do with Tom and Greg, particularly, I mean, I hated Greg during the first episode. I found him so annoying in the way that I really didn't like girls because I didn't love Lena Dunham. I mean, I grew up in a very like working class, you know, I I was a scholarship kid. Um, I grew up in, in that kind of situation. And so the idea of being like the Nepo baby or, you know, getting something from a very wealthy relative in this way and being entitled to it was very very unfamiliar to me. And so I always, it just 
it, it's really annoying to me and I really hated how incompetent he was, but he was making it, you know, he, he had the leg up despite the fact that he was incompetent. But I will say that I just love Tom so much. I think Tom yes. feels more like, I, I guess I just find Tom to be more relatable as opposed to Greg, but I find it especially endearing that Tom is constantly um, bullying Greg in a really funny way. I mean, all these characters are terrible, but out of them, all the terrible characters, I, I find Tom and Greg yeah. and their, their brotherhood, the disgusting brothers to be the most funny. I loved Boar on the Floor. I love the travel episodes. Um, whenever they go on some sort of retreat or adventure together, you know, when they were on the, the yacht, it was really funny when, when Tom took a bite of chicken from Logan's plate. That may have been the most bold way to stand up to, to Logan other than Kendall saying my father did all of this stuff and like telling the press um about all of the malfeasance at, at waystar royco <laughs> but but i think on a very personal like interpersonal level eating the bite of chicken was it for me god there's so much and i'm glad that character wise i think tom's has been one of the more interesting because he seemed kind of twisted and sadistic at first and yet his relationship with greg um in the safe room when he started throwing bottles at him that he takes out his <laughs> You know, even though when they were trying to do coke behind the whiteboard, you know, or all just, you know, the whole thing, the whole like a comedy of airs around, you're still my coffee boy, Greg, you know, you've got to get this stuff for me. And, um, you know, it's how similar that they both are. I just want to say how much I really liked the moment speaking, going back, calling back to the part about Shiv not being able to make a deal. Greg was there trying to make a deal with her saying, I have this info. I just want to let you know that this person knows, you know, I know Shiv that you're trying to suck up to Lucas instead of, she should have said, okay, if I take over, you can work for me. When she did not offer him a deal, the deal she offered him was shut up or I'll break your neck. That's not a deal. And so I think some of the mistakes Shiv makes is she thinks that's being a tough guy and she doesn't even actually know how the men really operate in some ways. Um, but one thing about Tom that I thought was really telling was a couple episodes ago, right after their, oh my gosh, when when she and Shiv, right after they had sort of a reunion, but then they had that big fight on the balcony hmm, and he yeah. falls asleep. I don't know if you remember the camera work. He's laying on yeah. his back and he's spinning around. And it's almost like, you know, he's lost his North Star. One thing he always does, you know, Tom always tries to figure out what's the center of power and how do I cozy up to it? And, you know, he he didn't, have that and but yet I had some sympathy for him even though he I think can be so cruel but he lost me when a couple episodes ago when Shiv said she was pregnant and he was it was an election night and he he was like didn't believe her but then last night and they, when we when when Shiv was drinking when she was pregnant and he's just staring at her and you're just kind of like he can't say to her why are you like it just that I mean, I don't, I know there's some people who think it's okay to have a glass of wine when they're pregnant. I'm one of the people who, who believes you shouldn't because you just don't know what effect it could cause. It's so early on too. Like, I think it's one thing to be like, oh, you're nine months in and like, you know, whatever. I, I mean, I don't know. I know nothing about this. We don't know how far along yeah. she is though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but she's early enough five, they said like, well, I don't know, but it's like early enough that it, yeah, anything could happen. There's so much that I loved. I think the thing as a corporate law person um, and, and someone who writes about white collar crime, when it came back is just a number, you know, the settlement that they, they didn't have to have a, you know, there was no one that's going to have to go to jail. It was just a number 
to settle the uh, whatever the stuff on the cruise lines that they had been hiding several you know seasons ago. I really like that. You know, there's so much funny stuff. I mean, I think the stuff when Kendall was so desperate when he had that big and manic when he had that big birthday party for himself, hmm. and then he couldn't find the kids present. Remember that? And he's going yeah. to the presents. I mean, it's all depressing. It's about losing yourself in pursuit of power. And a lot of that is losing your family and losing those relationships and the scale of it all. I mean, you see it with the with the number of presents that are there, but then you also see it when Greg is going to certify the decision to call the election and Jess is there. And I think they, they're both kind of collapsing under the weight of, of their decisions and, and what, what's happening around them. And I think that what I love about the show are the moments when you see each of these characters differently, but suddenly, like when we first meet the the family, um, the Catherine Graham type family, the woman Cherry Jones plays. And when, you, when we see them at the Pierce's house, it's the first time we see the Roys as crass and nouveau riche. And we see these these people look down on them. And then you sort of feel some sympathy for the Roys as being, because Nan, you know, you, you're supposed to like like these sort of waspy, you know, lefty people, but they're kind of, entitled assholes or the way Nan, you know, says, I don't really care about money, but then she keeps getting more money for the deal, you know, or I don't know. I think I like these, I like these moments when we have the Mount Olympus billionaires meet each other, like the big investor in um, the company. And they, and then he makes, he makes Logan go all the way out to, is it Long Island? And yeah. They have this giant feast and no one eats it or, you know, just, I like the, those things, those kind of power dynamics are fascinating to me. Um, and it was fascinating that somehow Logan was able to, like you say, intuitively get through all of that. Mm-hmm. But I really like Greg. It's, it's it's funny. I really, because he didn't have enough money to get a taxi. I mean, you, you may say he's getting a leg up because he's, you know, a member of their family, but he's like the poorer relation. His mother yeah. is like pushing him to do this. And yet his own grandfather, who is supposed to be this good guy, is like not if his grandfather had given him money, he wouldn't have had to work for this evil company. And by the time he's he's sort of sucked into the action of it, right? He becomes this awful yeah. person. And I think there could have been a better way that he could have done something better with the money other than become a recluse in Canada and, and not he could have provided something for his grandson so he didn't make this really terrible choice. I feel like I have a lot of thoughts about that, but that's an entirely different podcast. I think Ewan, though, I will say represents sort of the the problems with, you know, the very self-righteous. He's trying to represent like the heroic, liberal, lefty, like side, you know, environmentalist and and you know he he's like the first to get up and 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 crap on his brother but he also still is a part of that family and you know voted in favor of logan's interests at men you know there oh, was that's that right point, early on right early on they thought that he was going to vote against logan but he said hey he's my brother so you know it's all very complicated but also yeah to me ewan is just cut from the same cloth in many ways I will say, though, that the only thing I, I, w- I would posit there is that um, my impression was that Ewan watched his daughter kind of fumble the bag too many times and he wanted them to just kind of be able to, to have a, their own jobs and lives. And I think Logan would always say, make your own pile, but he never actually really enabled them to do that. Like he really would say that and then would want his entire family to be dependent upon yeah. him. Um 
Whereas I think Ewan doesn't give a crap. And I just want to be clear. I really do like Ewan. I thought he revealed yeah. a lot of himself at the eulogy. Yeah. And he said, I'm not perfect, but I try. And he stopped trying. And I thought that was really interesting thing to say about his brother. Yeah. No, for sure. And and we've been standing a legend ever since. Uh, do you know what standing is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you have kids um, and you're on the internet. We stand a legend um, and we have ever since Babe and Babe Pig in the City came out. He's he's a fantastic actor. Oh, my God. Uh, he was the guy in Babe. Yeah. Yeah. You I gotta rewatch that Babe. movie. Got to rewatch Babe. It'll make you see him in a totally different light. So as Succession wraps up and it enters the pantheon of great HBO shows, what do you hope it will teach future viewers about our current era of capitalism and corporate governance? I hope that viewers in the future go through the same emotional roller coaster that we do, which involves kind of saying, you know, this is fun, interesting, these people are terrible, kind of back and forth sympathy to loathing the characters. But then suddenly these moments like, you know, when this Nazi sympathizer becomes president, it's not really funny. And yet it's still entertaining. And I think that the most, this era, I think is characterized by it feeling like we're in the middle of some kind of performance that we're watching. And yet we occasionally, you know, the suspension of disbelief ends and then we realize, holy shit, we're in a lot of trouble. Because I feel like the last um, five years since this show started, our country has been immersed in one after another surreal episode of life. You know, we're in the middle of the Trump administration when it starts and there are echoes of the Trump family, I think, and not just the Murdochs in here. And then after that, we have a global pandemic. And now we have Donald Trump running for office again, even though he's been indicted and, and, and. And yet, you know, there are these ways that we detach and don't see it as really real. You know, I think stepping outside of this, maybe a decade or several decades in the future, I'm curious when people watch this, if they they can't believe we actually liked it. <laughs> like, what's wrong with these people that we liked it? But I think you work out, it's not exactly wish fulfillment, but there might be some psychological process where you you see something played out and it kind of takes away the sting and kind of allows you to get through your daily life during these extraordinarily um, dramatic and dangerous times. Well, Jen Taub, thank you for joining us on Fandom Made Me. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be part of the fandom community for succession. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced and engineered by Brian Carton, and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Brenna Gillespie, and of course, to all of our wonderful Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening.